Hello, my name's Bruce Lane uh, from GTI Energy. We have in-situ recovery uranium projects in Wyoming and amongst the neighbourhood of UEC, Cameco, Energy Fuels, UR Energy and the like. Uh, we are actively exploring our projects. We have defined resources and our ambition this year is to grow those as fast as we can. Uh, good to see you, um, Bruce. Thanks for coming back on. We spoke a few weeks ago about the company. I think you're joining us today. Just talk about the kind of excitement and fervor in the market um, when it pertains to uranium. Everyone's talking about it. Um, how do you take advantage of it? How are you going to change the way that you're set up? Or do you change the way that you're set up? Do you um, need to be talking more North American story? How are you doing this? Yeah, hi, Matt. Good to be back with you. Uh, look, uh, the answer to that question is we are definitely doing things um, slightly different, uh, differently to what we did last year. Um, we know that um, there's two reasons for that. One, we made a lot of progress during last year, which has given us a lot of confidence to invest more heavily going forward in a, in a few particular areas. But also, yes, the conversations are different now. There's much more interest. Uh, I think there were some deaf ears around for a good part of last year due to, I guess, the macro environment, uh, the sentiment. And also uranium was still kind of interesting to a lot of people, but I think there was, a, there was still a fair bit of sitting on the fence. Uh, for those that weren't already, you know, kind of buried in the story and really, really heavy, heavily committed. So we've seen that change. I think, you know, clearly the uranium price and um, and our share price has also responded. So, uh, but we always had a plan to put some more boots on the ground in, in the US. And we've we've done that by um, hiring Matt Hartman as our US um, uh, president of operations. Uh, and he's a, he's a guy with uh, lots of industry experience, ISR projects. He's worked on Dewey Burdock. He's worked on uh, Chemico Smith uh, Smith Ranch Highland, and and so, you know, we've got that technical and commercial capability now um, added to the to the portfolio that we've got over there with Jim Boffman and the team of BRS. So, we are spending more money, putting more effort and emphasis into things, uh, and we'll also be telling our story more broadly um, through the course of the next uh, few months in particular. Right, but does a market like this help an exploration company? Because you know. You're in the early, early stages. I get the kind of technical confidence here, but commercial, surely that's too early. Uh, look, um, yeah, the, the, we all know that the, uh, the early responders in terms of um, investment interest and, and, and share price are the top of the tree. You know, you Cameco, uh, investment grade uh, uh, type opportunities for investors, whether it be SPART or, or the ETFs. And so we've seen, um, you know, kind of heavy participation in those vehicles, relatively speaking, over the last year or two, we've seen it then move down to the developers, you know, the Bannermans of this world. Um, you know, I guess the, the outlier there a little bit is Peninsula, but the other developers, you know, who've got projects like Boss has done extremely well, another ISR project. Um, so we've seen those guys really catch fire and, uh, and move hard. Uh, and we've always expected that at some point the exploration cohort will get a bit more interest as as those investments the developers mature and so we've seen that so from a commercial standpoint for us it gives us confidence around timing and i think we've talked before on this on one of these calls about um how, how important timing is and you know we we do have to watch the fact that we you know we got to go and raise money from investors or sell assets or get royalty deals there's got to be a way to fund the company and if you shoot all your bullets at a time when the the market's not interested it makes it pretty difficult to fill the tin again. So, 
you know, that's really important for us um, and gives us a lot of confidence to keep going and to go harder. Right. So, so tell me how, because we're going to see a lot of new entrants. I mean, speaking this week with uh, Guy, Guy Kelly just yesterday, you know, Dustin Garrow, you know, they're saying for the more advanced uh, development stories, they want to kind of see the rubber hit the road, right? That if you're going to do an FID, get on and do an FID. For exploration companies, there's going to be a lot of new entrants. There's got to be a lot of people with assets which may work, won't work. It doesn't matter. It's all white noise. For a company like you, you've got to try and stand out. So what's your game plan? How do you differentiate yourself? Yeah, look, I think we're readily differentiated um, just by virtue of the fact of uh, being located in Wyoming and in the U.S., obviously. You know, we know that the U.S. has this um, really unique problem in the world, being the largest buyer of uranium with you know a need for about 50 million pounds a year. And, uh, and really not producing much to speak of at all. They used to produce 40 million, over 40 million pounds a year back in, back in the 80s. Um, but obviously that in, the industry got decimated by uh, mega, mega, megatons to megawatts, uh, the down blending of weapons um, out, of the, uh, out of the Soviet bloc and also by the withdrawal of US subsidies. And then the Kazakhs appeared and were selling uranium for 20 bucks a pound so or less. And so, you know, the industry really had to stop, had to shut down. So... Um, being in the US where they've got a, a, not only a big existing demand, 50 million pounds, but they've also said they want to triple um, nuclear power to 300 gigawatts from the current 100 gigawatts. So the future looks pretty uh, strong in terms of a, a uranium requirement. We've got the Russian conflict with Ukraine and the bifurcation of, uh, of, of the uranium market. The Chinese and the, and, and the Russians seem to have their foot on most of the Kazakh production going forward. And Kazakhstan's been a big supplier to the US. So the US really has to find pounds from somewhere else. And yes, they'll get some from US and uh, sorry, from Australia. They'll get some from the likes of Namibia. You know, they'll probably get some from Canada and 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 a few other spots. But it really does put the uh, the onus on looking in their own backyard. And we know with this uranium price that projects are economic. Our, our projects, if they are in production, we know that our neighbours in uh, UR Energy. Um, and uh, you know, Encore and the energy fuels—they're getting it back into business for a reason, and it's not—it's not because it's not they—they uh, like standing in the in the middle of the desert in the middle of winter. It's because they can make a heck of a lot of money, and so um, we think that that's really captures the opportunity for us. You know, we've we've got a, a customer right at their doorstep who's desperate for local demand. We've got pounds uh, in the ground that have a genuine prospect of being profitable at the current prices, certainly, and and even at lower prices. Um, so we are we are an explorer, you know. We're not uh, we're not a developer, um, and so we can deliver upside through the delineation of further pounds. And as the price of uranium goes up, we think we're quite well leveraged to that uh, to that occurrence. Okay, so tell, tell me this: you're an Aussie company with a US asset. Do the Aussies care that your projects in the US? Do the US uh, investors? Um, care that you're an Aussie company. How do you play that kind of geopolitical divide? Yeah, look, the answer to that is yes and no. So, um, look, the Aussie investors care that we're in the US because they buy the story. They understand the opportunity there, and that's that's why we're there. So that's easy. They like the US from a geopolitical risk point of view. Uh, they understand, yeah, everywhere has its little foibles, but they know we're in Wyoming, and they know they've been we've been generating. They've been producing uh, uranium there using in-situ recovery since the 70s and 80s. So from a risk point of view, Wyoming is a self-sanctioned state for uranium that 
that's all managed. So they care and they care in a positive way that we're in the US. From an investor point of view, look, um, US investors, I think we are there on the OTC, so we can they can buy stock locally. Um, you know, we obviously, the investors from the US today have been, uh, there's been a little bit of buying there, but you know, a lot of them come to the ASX and they buy on the ASX because they like the liquidity on the ASX if they have, you know, the technical capability to trade. So um, is it is it a barrier um, to them investing? I think if we're there on the ground and we're promoting our story, um, then I think it's much less of a barrier than it might appear. So uh, so certainly that's a focus going forward. Right. Okay. And and one of the other, I think, great conversations we've been having this week with sort of the macro contributors is around the size of some of these US assets. They, it, it seems to be someone's got to come in and like, mop these things up because individually in terms of the amount of pounds they're going to be able to contribute into the you know quite desperate and needy uh u.s market we're talking about 50 million pounds a year it half a million pound here half a million pound. it's it seems like nothing i mean are you relevant yeah look i think um you know you got to remember that um at hundred dollar uranium and look i think we had a conversation earlier about whether it's you know, north of 100 or the, the, the contract price is, is less than that. But let's use 100 as a round number because the mass are dead easy. Um, a 10 million pound deposit, that's a billion dollars of in-ground value. Now, we, we know the CapEx from um, uh, UR Energy's um, Shirley Basin project, which has been set up as an ISR to deliver resin beads 30 miles away to their Lost Creek plant. Now, you know, the CapEx that they've put forward, there's 33 US. And that's you know somewhere around the you know the million pound a year mark, and it's an eight point eight million pound deposit. So, you know we're clearly in that realm. And if you look at Peninsula and you look at the capex that they've put up to do their Aleutian uh, precip drying circuit, that on its own was around twenty, and then they had some borefield development added in uh, to their cost scenario going forward. But if you look at those hard capex costs, that would sort of suggest. You know, somewhere in the region of fifty to seventy, and then you know some ball field development costs on top. So we don't think it's unreasonable to think about being sub a hundred million dollars. Although you know, who knows where we'll be in three or four years' time in terms of inflation. Um, but if you've got uh, if you've got a billion pounds of in-ground value in your, and a capex around a hundred million bucks, well, you know, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to see that that can work. And so these are very attractive projects, which was why they're switching them all back on at the moment. Okay. Well, but, but okay. I'm, what I'm trying to do is sort of understand what the risks are to me. So if I look at the way that spot price has moved in the last two years, it's tripled, right? Effectively tripled. And that feels like it might be a spike. We've, se- we've seen cases with other commodities, lithium, rare earths, cobalt, where they've gone shooting up, the world looks great. It's bright, rainbows and unicorns everywhere. Um, life's going to be different, it, and except it wasn't. Why is uranium any different? Oh, look, I think the um, and and it is well talked about, well documented by um, some very wise heads in the industry. But I think that this um, supply demand gap um, has has been entrenched um, for a long period of time. It isn't something that's just turned up and and also the supply isn't required to meet a future demand like it is with batteries it's required to meet today's demand so we're you know notionally 40 50 million pounds short of being able to supply um, existing demand and remembering that is the entire requirement for the US um, there was a lot of mobile above ground inventory in the past uh, 
we think it's pretty clear that most of that, if not all of it, is really uh, now spoken for. It's either found a home in Sput, it's been consumed by the industry, it's ended up in China, for instance, which has been building a lot of reactors and has accumulated a lot of uh, inventory because they've got a massive program going forward. So I think the Japanese, they, you know, they've gone from selling their inventory to now wanting to buy um, more pounds and they're, they're struggling to restock. Um, Diablo Canyon, one example, when we we're going to have another reactor or two in the States that had destocked their inventory and they've got to restock it. So just based on the current reactor fleet, there's obviously a big gap between what's being produced on an annual basis and what uh, and what's being required. Then we've got the build on top and you might have 30 million pounds. I know Guy used the, the number 30 million pounds for the committed reactor builds Um you know, and that's in the in what you call the near term in the nuclear industry. So, so look, I don't uh, I don't think this is a fly by night thing. I mean, we've been at this for a long time, um, relatively. You know, we've been uh, working in the uranium space in the US since, uh, well, really personally since the, since 2018. Um, it isn't something that we thought oh, we'll just do this in case it has a you know a little flash for five minutes. We could see that there was a structural. Um, issue in the market with supply and demand and we're seeing it. It's taken a bit longer than I thought it would to play out but when it has played out it's it's been more dramatic than uh, we thought it would be so um, we don't think it's fly by night at all. We think it's quite a, you know, it's a long term thing unless you believe nuclear power is going to stop tomorrow and I don't think that's going to happen. Okay, so what are the risks um, to me in terms of the amount of kind of explorers out there I need to understand what their plan is, I need them to articulate it clearly to me. So your your plan is your US focused. That's that's the that's the differentiator. Is is that it? Oh look, we're US focused, but we're also in situ recovery focused. So from a you know from a um, a cost point of view and an environmental impact point of view, that's um, that's really we think that's really positive. We think our exploration uh, costs and our exploration risk is is manageable because we're drilling. You know, uh, shallower holes, and we're not—they're uh, not expensive holes to drill because they're mud rotary. Um, so we we think that from an exploration standpoint, uh, we've got a fairly tight handle on what our discovery costs are. You know, we we not, nothing's absolute, um, and we had a real win with our low Herma project because we were able to put pounds on the book without books without putting a drill hole in. So our discovery cost was particularly low there. But it, but on the drilling that we're doing, we've got a pretty good idea of how many pounds we'll be able to get out of the ground um, for how many dollars. And that's the exploration skill. It's not, we're not wildcatting here. We're not, you know, uh, doing, uh, you know, wildcat holes. We're, we're doing uh, expansion holes, resource expansion holes, and and sort of getting into the development holes stage. So from a risk point of view, though, generally, um, you know, you've obviously got exploration risk and you've got uh, exploration cost uh, risk as well. You know, drill, drilling this year, is, is certainly more expensive than it was the year before, and it's more expensive than the year before that. I think we started off in the Great Divide, um, you know, around nine dollars a foot in the middle of winter. You know, that was it. It, it, it costs more than that now. So, you know, and that's a, a factor of um, a bit more demand in the industry, um, fuel prices, and general inflation in the U.S. So, um, those things are all um, part of the risk. Uh, permitting risk, getting on the ground. You know, it's no easy thing, even. Uh, even in the US, I mean, it's it's easy relatively, but you've still got to get your ducks in a row. You've got to deal with the flora and fauna and the archaeological risk. Um, 
Thankfully, we don't have geopolitical risk really uh, where we are. It's never eliminated completely, but comparatively, it's low. Um, so those are those are those are really the risks. I think the other risk is that there's exploration conducted and it doesn't deliver, you know, the anticipated outcome. I think if you're in the Athabasca and you stick a hole and you don't hit the juice, it's a fairly painful experience. Um, where we are, it's it's less like that. Those those uh, big duster holes aren't really something we worry about because every hole does genuinely tell us where we are on the oxidation and reduction boundary and it helps us to pinpoint um, the juicy bits. So, but you know, you, you do, you know, we do obviously bear some risk if we're, if we don't know what we're doing uh, with putting our holes in the right place. Okay. And, and your, what's your view on, you've been in the game a while, what's your view between these sort of low grade ISR projects and these higher grade um, Athabasca Basin projects? Surely the Athabasca Basin projects are more likely to make more money. Yeah, look, it's as with all mining projects, and you know, if you if you've been across different commodities and and different styles of mineralisation, um, you know, you quickly realise that it's always a, um, a a bit of a Rubik's cube, a, mul- a multiplicity of factors that all have a significant influence on the outcome. And you can have all the grade in the world, but if it's really narrow veined and deep. You know, it's hard to make money out of it. Um, you know, these there's calcrete deposits around uranium, calcrete deposits around that just basically need to be scraped off the surface of of the earth, and they're only a few feet deep. Now, cost you nothing to drill them, cost you bugger all to mine them, and then as long as the metallurgy is not too crazy, um, you can make really good money with a bit of beneficiation um, on those projects. So, you know, ISR is not dissimilar. I mean, it's it's you can have. Uh, Great grade, but if it's um, say you know down below the sort of two hundred meter level, um, the costs go go up quite significantly. You know, so where, where you want to be, like where we are, where uh, you know the the mineralisation today is around the sort of four or five hundred foot mark on average. It, you know, it's not exactly that, but it's on average some of it shallower, some of it slightly deeper. As long as we're below the water table and we've got good thicknesses in the sand, so that we get the permeability for the slow kinetic leach of the of the lixivian, then you know our, our costs are, can be quite modest and quite well managed. If we have to do an acid leach and we're at twice the depth, then you know both those factors are going to really influence the economics. So no two deposits are the same. Some of them are pretty similar, which is helpful, and that's what we found in the Great Divide. Our projects very similar to our neighbours, and that's you know that's, that gives us great confidence that what we're seeing in our drill holes. Um, is working for them, or at least something very similar, just down the road. I mean, Chemico's case, ten miles away, and in, uh, in the Great Divide, it's uh, it's Lost Creek, and they're about fifteen miles away. So we're dealing with the same sort of geology, same sort of thicknesses and depths, and those as some of those deposits. Then that will give us great confidence that um, the economics shouldn't be too crazy. Okay, and, and one final thing um, on just risk is. Um, High risk, high leverage exploration versus development, advanced development, or producers. As an investor, I want a balanced portfolio. Again, how do I differentiate between the high risk, high leverage stories there? Because I do want them in the portfolio as part of a balanced portfolio, but it is high risk. It's not a case of high risk, high return guaranteed, it's high risk, binary, zero, or something, right? So, so how do you how do you pick a good one? Yeah, look, I think um, 
you know, certainly where, where we are, I believe, is we're not on the really high risk, um, you know, massively leveraged end. We're not going to get that hole that sends the share price to, you know, up, um, you know, 100 times or, or 20 times or anything like that. You know, we're much more mature. We're not at the development end. We don't have a PEA. But if you look um, 12, 18 months down the track, those are the sorts of conversations that we need to be having with investors is that, you know, we need to find a way to put enough data, enough information, enough IP around this deposit to be able to then put an economic story around it, however preliminary that might be. So, you know, look, there's, there's obviously, you know, if you really want the, the you know, the high, higher cost, higher risk thing, um, there, are, there, are, there are plays around, you know, the Athabasca is the easiest one to point to just because the expiration cost is so high. But there's some really good people there who do know where to put the drill bit and they seem to have repeatable success. And so, you know, that they're worth a pun. And I've, you know, I've got one or two of those in my portfolio. So, you know, but I also really like this US story. I really like Wyoming simply because of the context and because you've got these players around. And if UEC, for instance, is going to turn their... Uh, turn their mill on at uh, Willow Creek in August, as they say, and, and Amir is saying he's going to sell it into the spot market and, you know, all power to him because the margins should be quite good, um, then that those mills need more feed one way or another. And so when we're in that environment where we kind of have some optionality around, you know, maybe it's selling a deposit, maybe it's partnering, maybe it's, but, but more than likely, you know, you've got to look at a development scenario and that's certainly where we'll hit. And if the other things come up, then that's great. So, you know, I think where we are in the risk spectrum is not at the really risky end, but hey, we don't have an economic study yet. So, but th there's a clear path to where we want to get to and how we get there. And that's our job over the next, you know, two, three, four, six, 12, 18 months is to keep people on track with what the progress is going to look like, what we need to do to get from A to B and then deliver it. Look, Chris, I hear what you say, but I, I'm, I'm looking for more. What is it that truly differentiates you from all of those other stories? Yeah, look, I, I think, Matt, we're, um, one of the things that's quite different about us is that we, uh, we've got deposit, a deposit with defined uh, resource and we've got a, a, a pathway um, to a, a much larger resource, both at our low Huma project and um, at our Great Divide Basin projects. And then on top of that, we haven't, uh, we haven't actually put any pounds out for Green Mountain. But we, uh, but we hope to in the future. But the, to it, the best of our knowledge, there's no one that that is is kind of I'll, I'll use the term free range, sort of running free from one of the major companies. We know that nuclear fuels is pretty active up the road with KC, but they haven't got a deposit yet. They haven't got a haven't got a resource there tied up with uh, with Encore. Um, we've got we've got a, a one or two around Strathmore are doing some some stuff, but you know they they haven't really got an ISR deposit of any scale and. Where I mean, that's not to criticise them. It's just where they are in their in in their uh, life cycle. Premier American uranium would be the same. You know, they're the sort of early days in terms of putting pounds on the book. So, we think we're the only ones there that have got something that that uh, is is looking meaningful. And um, and so, you know, we we think that differentiates us quite substantially from all of the major companies that are around us that are uh, actively, you know, in in production or about to get back into production. 